WomenX on the front lines unpacks some of the most challenging questions we face in our society. Like, what is the real science behind COVID? Why are women investing? Where are the women owners in sports? What is the connection between our ancestry and food? I would like to know those answers. We will answer all of those questions and more with women on the front lines who are working to solve these problems. Connections are core to the human experience, and conversations are where we begin to challenge our own ideas to come to new and better understanding. I'm Mary. And I'm Tiffany. And together we'll go in search of the answers that women everywhere want to know. So pull up a seat at our table and join us on Women Wednesday. And don't forget to visit our website at womenx.org and join our learning platform to delve deeper into the topics that we cover this season. Let's get educated, then get activated. Welcome back. We hope that you enjoyed Dr. Blazer's breakdown of the science of COVID in episode one. There are just so many moving parts when it comes to understanding COVID and how vaccines protect us. That's why I am so excited today to share our conversation we had with Dr. Hussein back in August, where she helps us understand the importance of vaccines and boosters. In Massachusetts, we had a 70% vaccination rate. We are focused on boosters, and it is easy to forget that in other parts of the country, they are in a much different place. We're dealing with a completely different reality here in Georgia, where we just hit a 48% vaccination rate. It is very refreshing to speak with Dr. Hussein, who brings a perspective from the West Coast, where she served on the front lines in Washington, a state that was the hotbed of virus activity at the beginning of this nightmare. Dr. Hussein is a clinical assistant professor in the Department of Allergy and Infectious Disease who completed her fellowship training and MPH in epidemiology at the University of Washington. She's passionate about clinical infectious disease work, medical education, and mentorship, as well as improving diversity, equity, and inclusion both in the hospital and in academia. We connected with Dr. Hussein a few times over the course of the pandemic. We wanted to know, is herd immunity still possible or even the goal? What is the difference between a variant and a strain? And is the booster simply a third shot of what we already have? Or is it an updated vaccine? Our conversations with her were so necessary. It's so confusing to distinguish between all the different iterations of COVID and the various vaccines mentioned in the media. Dr. Hussein breaks down all this information so easily. Since our initial conversation in August, Dr. Hussein has shared with us the updated data on these issues, which we will sprinkle throughout this episode. Let's take a listen. When we had talked about this back in February, the question was, you know, there's mutant, there's variant, there's strain, what are these things? And so I was trying to explain what they all are. I will say at this point, there's no way you're going to keep track because everyone is using the terms interchangeably. And they're not the same thing, as we explained before. But in terms of the variants that are happening now, I would say I would totally forget about the strain versus variant name because even people who like their job is literally to name things argue about what makes a strain and what makes a variant. Right. Mm -hmm. And so I think now and I when you look at the media, even when you look at like different government websites, people are using strain and variant interchangeably. So I would 
forget about that naming structure. I know I taught it to you now <laughs> out the window. We're going to roll with the times. And what I would actually focus on is what the WHO labels variants of interest, variants of high consequence, and then variants of concern. So those are different categories that are given to the variants that we talk about, like Delta, Gamma, Lambda. So a variant of interest basically is one that has some mutations that were like, oh, these mutations can cause it to be more resistant or this mutation can cause it to be more transmissible. Let's just watch and see if it plays out like that. So those are the variants of interest. Right now, there are a handful of ones you probably never heard of, IOTA, you know, whatever. And they're just being like monitored out in the ethers, nothing to be worried about. Variants of concern are the ones that we hear about. So Delta, Gamma, and um, Alpha and Beta, all those are the ones that we've spoken about before. And just to clarify, those names are the new names for the ones that we already knew before. So Beta was the UK, or maybe Alpha was the UK, I can't remember. But those were the variants that we already heard about. But now from numbers, we went to names just to make it a little bit easier. So you might also see those interchangeably at times. But that's, I think, the category that I would focus on. So variants of concern are the ones that we're currently talking about. The way they become concerning is if they show that they're more infectious or they transmit more quickly. Maybe their symptoms they cause are more severe. That's when we start worrying about those. Now, a variant of high consequence, that's like the highest category, that is one that is showing us that not only is it having these properties of maybe being more infectious, but now we're seeing that our treatments aren't working or our vaccines are much less effective than we would plan, or we're not able to locate it or test it with our current diagnostics. That's when something becomes high consequence. There are none right now labeled like that for COVID. None of the COVID variants are considered have reached the level of high consequence. So right now we are just in a variant of concern. And I think that naming structure is much easier because that helps us realize, do we care about this? Do we not care about this? Like, what's up with this? And that's what we want to know, right? At the end of the day, it doesn't matter what it's called. We need to know if we need to be worried about it. So that's the naming I would focus on. That's really Um, helpful. What about Delta's genetic makeup makes it a concern? Yeah. And I would say it's more so, so there's Delta has a ton of mutations in different areas that affects how transmissible it is, that affects how infectious it is, that affects how well it hides from the immune system. And all those combined is what make it different than the original COVID that we saw, because now we're seeing that people might be getting sicker than they were with the original or that, you know, before we used to say you needed a certain amount of time next to somebody before you got infectious. Now we're thinking that Delta transmits a little bit more quickly. So your exposure time might actually be shorter. And that's why we call it a variant. And that's why it's a variant of concern. Now, when you're talking about, uh, you said gamma and lambda two. Gamma, just to clarify, is the name for the Brazilian strain. So we already knew about that one back in the day. Lambda, not very much is known about it. It's mainly in South America. There are some studies there that are showing that it's breaking through their vaccine. But to be clear, they're using a different vaccine than any of the ones that we're using in the States. So it's very hard for us to garner any information from that because we don't really know how it's working with our vaccines and we are not seeing cases here um, extensively yet. So that is not yet reached the level of like concerning, but it's being watched and monitored to see, you know, what happens. So the genetic code is not changing dramatically. So is that why the vaccines are a good protection against the Delta? Yeah. So the mutations 
that happened can change how like the property of the of the virus like how it works how it gets into the system the vaccines usually target a specific thing that causes the body to recognize it so at this you know for this one is that that spike protein that we've been talking about and since all of them still have that kind of core our vaccines continue to work so to follow up with the vaccine conversation and the differences amongst them have we collected enough research to assess whether all the vaccine stimulus, the way they activate our immune system, are created equal when it comes to these, you know, viruses and variants? So, for instance, I've been reading that people who elected to get the J&J adenovirus vaccine mm-hmm. is not proving as effective as the mRNA vaccines. Would you say that's true from a science scientific standpoint? I would say from a scientific standpoint, all the current studies and research have not been fully published or fully peer reviewed. So they're all in the process. So in the era of COVID, we're getting so much prelim information before Mm -hmm. things have gone through the rigorous process. So it's hard to put all, you know, your eggs in one basket and just be like, yes, this is the article I agree on. Now, the studies that have come out that are, you know, looking at this have shown that Pfizer and Moderna are effective right? The numbers for those vary widely. So I'm not going to quote a percentage because it's just been kind of all over the place, but it has shown protection. J&J originally, their prelimor also shows that they work against Delta. I think there was a recent article or a recent study that is not yet published or peer-reviewed that says that maybe J&J is less effective than they originally thought. But again, we don't have enough studies because if you think about it, Delta is just coming out now and people are just vaccinated now. And so trying to do that type of research in real time is tricky and it doesn't give us the full picture. When back in the day, you get like years, you complete your research, you follow up. But now we're like, oh, what's happening? So I think it's really hard to say which vaccine is more effective. Should I get this instead? But what we do know is that we are not recommending cross vaccination between the ones that we have now. So if you have Moderna, stick to Moderna. If you have Pfizer, you stick to Pfizer. If you have J&J, you stick to to J&J. There's talk that J&J, that all of these might come out with a third vaccine slash booster, which that nomenclature is a little tricky as well. But the point is, you're going to stick with whatever vaccine you already got, and there's no recommendation to get a different one. I think it's important to note here that we've continued to reach out to Dr. Hussein as the science community collects more data on vaccine efficacy. She recently provided us with an update on which vaccines seem to offer the most protection against COVID. She said, I think in the areas that matter, mortality, severity of disease, hospitalizations, etc., they are all still considered effective, though the mRNA vaccines are considered slightly better. Seems like there might be some evidence that immunity is longer in those who got Moderna, but again, hard to say with certainty. Also, she wrote to share, It is now okay to mix and match, but that being said, we still tell people they can stick with their original vaccine since they already know that they were able to tolerate it without issue. If you really wanted to switch things up, I'd say an addition of one of the mRNA vaccines... Pfizer or Moderna, to a J&J would make the most sense, but again, not necessary or preferred, and we don't have clear evidence that one combo is superior to another. And when we reached out to you, we still were unclear as to whether the mandate was that everybody received the third booster, but now it seems pretty clear that yes, they're preparing to make it available to the masses. But from, again, from a scientific perspective, 
do we all need boosters? What is in the booster exactly? And how does it give us additional protection? Yeah. So first, the current only recommendation is for the immunocompromised. So people who've had transplants, people who are on immunosuppressive drugs. The reason for that, and they're calling it a third vaccine, is that their original response to the two doses was not as strong as immunocompetent people. And that's because their immune system isn't as robust. So it doesn't create that antibody response. So they're first in line because really they still need to get that antibody that some of us have had. Now, the rest of us, it's looking like we're all going to need boosters, which I think most people predicted early on, originally thought to be at six months. Now it's looking like eight months. I would say that the earliest any of us would expect immunocompetent hosts would expect to get another vaccine is probably eight months from your second dose is the thought process right now. It's still not something that has been like CDC recommended or 100% out there, but it is in the works. Now, when you ask what the makeup of the booster is, that's where people will get confused. So your booster is just going to be a third shot of whatever you already got. So that would be the thought. So if you had Moderna, you'll just get a third Moderna. If you had a Pfizer, you'll get a third Pfizer. And if you had a J&J, you're likely going to get a second J&J. With time, if there's enough shifts and we're able to formulate boosters that are working stronger against like maybe new variants or new mutations, that's possible. And that might be a different formula and that would require a different FDA process. But right now, the thought is just getting boosted with what we already have. And with the mRNA vaccines and that new that technology being used, in vaccines, does that make it easier? Because in our conversation before, you talked about how it's like a code and you just, you know, it, you tell the computer to do another, you know, mm-hmm. action. And so I would assume that to create a booster with mRNA would be uh, much easier than the other way that they are developing vaccines. Yeah, that's the thought is that it would be easier to manipulate and make those changes down the line if need be. Um, again, I don't make vaccines, so I don't want to be like, oh, yeah, psh, so easy for them. They can do whatever. Um, but the theory is that mRNA is a little bit easier to manipulate. And so maybe hopefully if we needed to change the structure of the vaccines that we have, it might be a little bit less you know, hard than if we were using other methods going forward. Uh, you mentioned that in some people's immunoresponse, the virus hides a little bit better. So how would a booster help that person whose immune system, you know, is being tricked? So the, if you're talking about the, are you talking about the immunocompromised people specifically? Yes. Yeah. So there, the issue there is that not so much that the virus is hiding from them. It's just that their body doesn't have a robust enough response, enough antibodies to be able to find it and attack it. And that's the same for, so immunocompromised people in general, that is how it is for all things. So flu, colds, their body doesn't, isn't as strong as a response just because they can't formulate that like defense guard that the rest of us will. And so it's harder for them to target and attack those things and get it out of their systems. So that's, that's that part. It's not so much the virus specifically itself. It's more so their body response. And so they just need a little, little extra kick. And then what about us who are, not immunocompromised. How would you yeah. The point for that is that your immunity wanes over time. So if you think about our tetanus boosters, right, we get them every 10 years, it's the same idea. So at some point, your immunity might wane and you need a booster to just be like, hey, remember me? I visited you 10 years ago. I'm back. I need your body to like wake back up and be ready to attack me. That's the point of boosters when we do them for other vaccines. And it would be the same idea for COVID. Just like we need to remind the body that this is out here. We need you to form that reaction. I was curious with, you know, at the beginning of this pandemic, we talked about potentially 
herd immunity and eradicating the virus. Mm-hmm. If we could mm-hmm. stop it from mutating and doing what it's doing right now, that, you know, didn't happen. And for a lot of reasons, and I don't think we can you know, beat ourselves up about it. We, we try best as a society to do what's best for society. However, I wonder if that's now still a possibility. Could we, like other health crises, actually eradicate COVID if everybody had an immunity to it? Yeah, I think that's an interesting question because originally when we started, the thought was our herd immunity to a level of maybe 70% would prevent, you know, people from getting it spread. I think that thought is now kind of pushed to the side with Delta because we're now a lot of people are saying we may never reach herd immunity because if we're constantly mutating and changing and Delta has just made it a higher, has made the bar a little bit higher for all of us to be protected and not spread. So I think right now there's no great projection of how much people we need to get vaccinated to get herd immunity. We don't even know if that's really possible anymore, but we do know that vaccination is the only way to even start having that conversation. Um, so I think Delta set us back. Um, I'm an optimist, so I'm like, maybe. But, you know, it's hard because, as you guys mentioned, even just having local pools reaching a certain amount of vaccine rate is hard, right? Like, we can't even get our neighbors to get vaccinated. How are we going to get an entire nation? Right. The other question I had is, I remember from our earlier conversations in December that you, there was talk about the flu being a virus that mutates quickly and it changes mm-hmm. a lot. And coronavirus was thought to not change that quickly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Is that still the case? And it doesn't change that quickly that we would need the same amount of like every year we would need a new vaccine update. I think it's hard to say because it's so early. We've had so much experience with the flu and you're right. The flu changes all the time, right? You can have big shifts, small shifts that will change it. And COVID has still, even though it feels like it's been here for a century, it's really only been still two, like a year and a half. And so I think we're seeing that we need boosters for our antibodies and we may need to, you know, get that stuff done. But it's hard to say whether this is going to be annual. It's very possible that it could be. But how that's going to look and what that's going to end up being is still, I think, a little hard to say. I think the hope was that we would suppress this enough that it would just be a little bit of a cold here and there and it wouldn't be a big deal but i think we've shown with our variants that they come back a little stronger they come back a little bit more aggressive and so it's really hard to kind of predict what that's going to look like going forward and i know a lot of people that i've been talking to have been curious about antigen testing and whether or not we have enough antibodies in our system to fight off covid and that being a test that would help inform the individual whether or not they should go on a trip or should participate in something. So that was one question that I've heard from a number of my friends. Uh, is that something that's going to be available to people? And does that even make scientific sense? Yeah. So, I mean, I'm, I also am wondering if the antigen slash antibody terminology there is a little interchange. So we have antibody tests right, that people check to see if they're still producing an antibody. Again, labs test antibodies different, so it's not always clear whether that's going to find the antibody that you have. So we obviously don't recommend those for people. I've also heard a lot of people saying, well, if I still have antibodies, you know, do I still need to get boosters or do I still need to do all these other things? So we don't recommend antibody testing as a means of anything, really, not to say you're safe to go somewhere, because the point is, 
people are getting breakthrough infections who are vaccinated, who were recently vaccinated, who likely have antibody responses. And so it's not the presence of the antibody so much. It's just the breakthroughs that are kind of happening with the variants. So I would say, even if that test, I don't think that's something that I actually haven't heard of them doing antigen testing to like test levels, because that's not, you test antibodies to see if you're protected, not antigens. The antigens are for like more acute disease. And so there's like a rapid antigen test that people do, like, you know, the swabs to see if they have COVID. Um, but that wouldn't be as helpful to see if you're protected per se. And again, I wouldn't rely on just having the presence of stuff at this time because we've seen things can work through even if you're vaccinated. Yes, you're not going to have, you're not going to get very sick, but it's not a marker that you're invincible. And I think that's what people are struggling with. But I think as far as like a magic test to be like, all right, I'm safe to go. I don't think that's anything that's going to happen. And again, I could be wrong and things could be in the works that I don't know of. I'm not privy to everything that goes on. I just have my little, you know, my little corner that I try to focus on. So we've talked about you know, just having to reckon with time and time again, we did it in our December conversation, our February conversation. Now, COVID is not going anywhere. It might look nope. different, but this is our new reality. And so with that being said, different locales are handling mandates very differently. As we mentioned mm-hmm. in Massachusetts, in New York, even compared to here in Georgia, will mandating vaccines make a real scientific difference? I mean, I think so, right? So the thought is our only real hope is people getting vaccinated. We have proof that people who are vaccinated are not getting as sick. They're not being hospitalized. You know, their period of infectiousness might be less than someone who's unvaccinated. So I think vaccines are really the only way forward because if we can prevent ourselves from dying and getting severe disease and coughing all over other people, then we'll decrease the spread. And if we decrease spread, we decrease the likeliness of mutations, right? Because we talked about earlier, mutations arise when viruses get to hop and replicate. Mistakes happen when you're constantly replicating. And if we're not replicating because we're not going anywhere else, then the thought is maybe we can stop mutating and stop making things, you know, worse or stronger or more aggressive. And that's the hope. But I think, yeah, I think that's, that's it. It's important. You know, the reason why I asked is to just state it again, because I think in the midst of everything, people forget, right, that what's the ultimate goal. And the ultimate goal is like to do our little part on stopping the spread, whether that's by being more cautious, getting vaccinated, wearing a mask, thinking twice mm-hmm. about throwing a party or whatever, because it's still there's still little things that are in, in our control. And as a community, mm-hmm. those little things snowball and become community things that we can do to help each yeah. other out. I, I know that the scientific community is taxed, right? COVID has been a lot trying to process more research on one hand and, and research becoming more open to the public and information mm-hmm. becoming more accessible. But on the flip side of that is that there are still rigorous review processes in place that take time and that the public mm-hmm. is not so patient about. I hope that at the same time they're developing the boosters, they're also still working on the vaccine for children. Do you know if there's an updated outline and timeline for that um, when young children will be able to be vaccinated? Yeah, there is no clear update right now, but you are correct. They are working on all these things simultaneously. So, I mean, we all saw that they just finally approved Pfizer. They're still working on Moderna approval. They're simultaneously working on the children's vaccine and getting that approved. They're working on, you know, the boosters. There's a lot on the FDA's plate. And I think they have, you know, people are facing, we're getting a lot, people are getting a lot of public pressure, which obviously, you know, everyone wants to do their best going forward. 
So I think that's great. But I think the other thing I forget is that they're so busy focusing on what else they're going to approve and do that we're not even taking advantage of what we already have, right? Like there's still people who aren't vaccinated, right? And that has been available to us. And while the people who want, you know, the children's vaccines, that would be awesome. Obviously we want our kids to be protected. All those things are going to take time. So while we wait, we still need to make use of what we have in front of us. So continuing to have those conversations with friends and family that are unvaccinated, continuing to, you know, make sure that our kids are masked when they go to school, which I know is super stressful for a lot of people and making sure that we can be safe with the tools that we have while we await these other things to come in the pipeline. Cause they're all there. It's like a bottleneck. It's all just getting reviewed and, Things are getting figured out, but it's getting there. And now with more people being vaccinated all over the world, what are some of the things that we've learned about some of the fears that initially were uh, thought to be in place about, you know, women who are pregnant and present? Mm-hmm. Now we have so much more data. Yeah. What are some of the new information to ensure those who may have been worried about the vaccine? can be a little bit more comfortable in going through with taking the vaccine. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, right now it's been a few months and people have been vaccinated. We've seen that there's really no long-term side effects that anyone is having from the vaccines. We have studies on pregnant women who had the vaccine. There's no like worsening effects there. We've seen no adverse effects. And so now, you know, the CDC, the, you know, American College of Obstetrics and Gynecology, all of them are strongly recommended that all Pregnant people, people who want to be pregnant, people who are breastfeeding, all of them should get vaccinated because we haven't seen anything happen to the group. And there's been, you know, thousands and thousands of pregnant women who's gotten, who've gotten pregnant who aren't even included in these studies. And we haven't seen anything. And so I think that's a huge gain that we've learned. And, you know, we also originally when we started, we weren't vaccinating 12 year olds either. Right. So that was something that came about recently as well. So we were like, OK, we've decreased the level. We know now it's safe for them. And now we're just continuing to work backwards. And so I think we've seen that there's no long-term side effects. We've seen that it's not affecting fetuses. We've seen all these fears that people had originally are not, are not true. And like we predicted, right? We already, we were going forward with caution and hesitancy, but we felt relatively comfortable that none of these things were going to be cause adverse effects because of the way these vaccines were created. And now we have proof of that. And so I'm hoping that these things quell some of their fears and their concerns, but there's some people, no matter how much information you give them, it's not going to change their mind. And again, and I like to, I told, and we told these people before, right? Like we haven't seen anybody die of a vaccine, right? Specifically related to that or, you know, get sick from that. But we have seen people die of COVID. I have had pregnant people in the hospital who are unvaccinated, who are not doing well. And I think we need to deal with the things that we know are concrete and that we see in front of us instead of theoretical fears and concerns that we have. Not that those aren't justified or important at times it's good to think through all these things but at the same time sometimes i think we let our fear of the unknown overtake our fear of what we actually know and what we can see in front of us and you know covid is a real risk and it's been a risk for unvaccinated folks and we are seeing unvaccinated people i mean 96 percent of hospitalizations are or i should say covid hospitalizations are in unvaccinated people and these are young people these are healthy people these aren't people who have multiple comorbidities they're not old And that is because those people got vaccinated, right? The people who were older age or who had morbidities, high risk, a lot of those people got vaccinated and people who didn't get vaccinated are the young ones. The ones who thought we were all invincible, we're fine, we have no health conditions, we'll be okay. Those are the people now ending up in the hospital. When we first met, you were, you know, coming to us from one of the hotbeds of the pandemic. 
And I want to know, how has your practice changed over the course of the pandemic? And I know you were working with some of the trials. What does that look like now? Um, what have you seen? And you've talked a little bit about that, seeing pregnant people who are sick, who are unvaccinated mm-hmm. and things like that. We don't have those eyes on the ground. And I think a lot of times the media doesn't shine a light on those stories. So I would love mm-hmm. to know you, what is it like on the ground now in Seattle? Yeah. So, I mean, luckily for us, Seattle had a high vaccination rate. We are having increased cases um, as time goes. And so that's why we are back to, you know, masking indoors and kind of reverting back to some of our original stuff. The people that we've seen, we haven't had, luckily for us, a ton. We have a decent amount of cases, but it's not in the hundreds of thousands or anything like that. You know, I think in the last few weeks, maybe we had 65, 70 people within our entire health system hospitalized for COVID-related things. The people that I've seen who've been really sick are young and unvaccinated, like I mentioned. And that's the majority. We've had pregnant people who are unvaccinated also in the hospital. We have seen breakthrough infections. And again, those people are asymptomatic or maybe have a mild cold, but because we are so proactive in testing and making sure that people aren't out there spreading things, especially in the hospital, we catch all of these cases and we're able to kind of protect and quarantine and do what we need to do. And so I would say I'm lucky because, you know, we are fortunate to have people here who got vaccinated and it's making it less terrible than a lot of other places. I think that has been our saving grace. Is the quarantine timeframe still the same? Oh, I should, you were going to ask that too. So the quarantine for, it's been changing. The CDC has been updating it for vaccinated and unvaccinated folks, and it's a little bit different. And it also depends on if you're a healthcare worker or not. So I typically what I tell people is check what your public health department is recommending for your state, because it may vary slightly. But for us, you know, if you're vaccinated and you're exposed, you're still kind of getting a quarantine. If you're, or sorry, unvaccinated, exposed you're kind of still doing the quarantine that was recommended before if you're vaccinated you're doing um, testing frequently to make sure if you're just exposed to somebody and making sure you don't turn positive or the moment you have symptoms and you're sent home kind of thing so it really varies between each um, state and most people are just following the cdc guidelines which are a little tricky sometimes because everyone has like specific they're like well what if i saw this person for two hours and then next to them i saw and so like, there's not great guidance for that. So obviously ask your local healthcare provider, but I would refer most people to their Department of Health websites. And with this new variant and spread, are the testing facilities starting to ramp back up because a lot of them had closed and it's been hard to find yeah. necessarily the testing places. So is that going to be changing? I'm hoping so. A lot of the um, testing sites also switched to vaccine sites as well. And so now it's the balance of, vaccines for those third um, shots for people who are immunocompromised and then still ramping up testing. It has been a little bit harder, I think, to make appointments these days, but in Seattle, at least, we still have a decent amount of options, but not nearly as much testing as was available in the beginning. And I presume that's what it's like in most other states. But I think every state has to kind of take a look and see what their structure is and decide, are we meeting demand and do we have enough and do we need to focus more on vaccinating testing and where should our money go and where should our resources go? So I think that's going to be like a a county by county, city by city decision. But I'm hoping that people don't forget and that we still have testing because if we can catch people, we can quarantine people. If we can quarantine people, we can prevent spread. As we head back into another end of year with the pandemic. God, already? I I mean, I honestly can't believe it. The summer brought a lot of joy for Mary and I because the sun came out, you could get out a little bit. We can mm-hmm. finally meet each other. 
But here we are heading back into, you know, the winter. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And where you're already isolated because of weather in a lot of Mm -hmm. places. But now it seems that isolation is probably the safest thing again. And so where do we go from here? I think we go back to our COVID original roots and we remind ourselves that we used to bake sourdough. And stay at home and jump around and do our own exercise. <laughs> um, and hopefully not to that extent, you know, the vaccination has helped a little bit. But I think we are reverting back to being masked when we are inside for sure. Being masked in crowded outdoor events. You know, people took a little bit of a break going to sporting events when things kind of opened up. I still, even though you're outside, you're still right next to somebody and you're still breathing their air. So masking there as well. Um, washing our hands again, trying to socially distance maybe only spending time with other vaccinated families, trying to avoid too much intermingling. Back to the things that we learned before that we all can do, but we all kind of let go because we didn't want to stretch that muscle anymore. We might have to bring that muscle back a little bit, get back yeah. into that just Isn't to sustain. Is it too early to call what we should do on the holidays? <laughs> <laughs> Probably, but I mean, I wouldn't, honestly, I mean, what is it like August now? Most yeah. of the holidays, in my opinion, start. Labor Day. It's almost September um, in my head. Yeah, I, I right? feel like you can get tested. You can do precautions. Yeah, there's a lot that of would that. allow you yeah. to have Comfort. your holiday with yeah. vaccinated family members. You know, Everybody feel agrees. pretty yeah. comfortable. But you know what the problem is with the holidays too that we discussed before is the traveling part. So like getting mm-hmm. on the plane and yeah. the, you know the exposure those moments like directly yeah. before the travel. I think yeah. is what causes the Does most. It- Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think, again, if it's, it's going to be a risk discussion, right? If your family's all vaccinated and you're all vaccinated, at least, you know, if you get sick, it's not going to be severe. So if that's a risk people are willing to take, then just making sure that they're wearing their mask fully on the plane and they're not, you know, eating or drinking too often. And it sounds like a lot of airlines are now mandating that their mm-hmm. workers get vaccinated. And so I think that itself is helpful, but it's the passengers that we can't control, right? But if everyone is sticking to their masks and making sure all that, then it's a a calculated risk. And I think that's what our life is right now, all calculated risks. As we head into the holidays, Dr. Hussein's point still resonates with us all. Our decisions to gather and travel are all calculated risks. Thank you, Dr. Hussein, for always making yourself available to us throughout this pandemic. You're our trusted resource for all things COVID. Hope you'll tune in next Wednesday for episode three, our last COVID combo for the season. A special shout out to Joy Nesbitt, the artist whose music is featured in this episode. She is a talented jazz-influenced neo-soul artist from Dallas, Texas. The song we featured called Joy is from her album, Another Day in Paradise which you can find on Spotify, Amazon, and YouTube. Be sure to follow us on Instagram at WomenX Community for your fill of women's history and news. And if you want to help us grow, be sure to rate and review our podcast. Till next episode, consider dropping in on the next WomenX Community event. We look forward to meeting you. Be safe and see you next week. to bring